The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. Uh, I just pray that you will speak to us today. I pray that you will empower Scott as he brings your word uh, just to communicate clearly what you'll have for us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, will work in our lives to make us more like you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ethan. <clears throat> Good to see all of you today. No football today. Who are you rooting for next week? Chiefs? 49ers? Who are you, are you rooting for both? I always put out my Super Bowl picks. Uh, I'll put them out next Sunday night around 6 p.m. I'll put them out. <laughs> Might even be here for them, uh, so I'll be coming to our Super Bowl party. We had a great time last year with that. Hey, it is good to see you, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, as Ethan just read. And uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> and today is a difficult passage, not going to lie. All right? And uh, this passage that we have today, actually, we could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks with it. We really could. And uh, I hope to have you out of here by two, but uh, we really could go on a long time with it. But this is a critical passage, and if you want to understand your faith, or if you're just exploring the Christian faith and you want to understand it, this is a really good place to be, to think about this, to really dig even deeper than we're even, it's even possible to get into it today. You see, one of the challenges for Christians is that we tend to pile up a whole bunch of stuff on our faith sometimes that makes it hard for those of you who are trying to become Christians to figure out what Christianity is about. Sometimes we make Christianity complicated. We turn it into much more religion than it needs to be. And that's one thing that this passage is about today. In fact, you see this all throughout the New Testament. Even the early church struggled with this. And part of the reason it's a struggle is because there's a distinction of Christianity that's different than every other faith, every other spiritual belief in the world that every other faith and belief in the world has some method of earning salvation or whatever it is that you earn, whatever it is that is the benefit of that faith. Uh, and you have to do a certain number of good works or do a certain number of acts or do something and somebody's keeping score or something is keeping score and one way or the other, you earn salvation or you earn whatever it is that you earn and you die basically with your fingers crossed hoping that you did enough. Christianity is different. You can't earn it. It's been earned for you by Jesus Christ that you get everlasting life by faith, not by works. 
And that's a completely different train of thought. In fact, it's hard for us as human beings to get that because so much in our world, we have to earn. We have to work hard to get it. And when somebody gives us a gift, we even have a hard time receiving it. We think we would just want to give you something back. Well, can I pay you for that? You're going to buy your lunch? No, let me do, let me do half. Can I at least pay the tip? Can I give you something? Well, you got me a gift for Christmas. I didn't even think to buy you a gift. Now I got to go out to 7-Eleven at midnight Christmas even buy you a gift. And the idea that the living God, the God of the universe, loves you so much that he sent his only son to live a perfect life that you can't live, that you're trying to live, that people in every culture try to live. That's why we develop religions and spirituality, because we know there's something there. We carry around a spiritual angst in our hearts that there's something that needs to be done, and we feel like we have to do it ourselves. And Jesus tells us, no, you can't. And the Scriptures tell us that actually the Lord is going to handle that for you. And salvation is a gift of grace, unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. And even after you accept Jesus Christ and you start getting into your, your faith and going to church and reading the Bible, you start to accidentally do something. You start to put the throne of the law at the highest point of your mind, and I just need to obey God here, and oh, I'm not obeying, and I'm struggling. And suddenly you forget that the throne that Jesus is on is a throne of grace, that the throne that you can approach with confidence is a throne of grace where you are welcomed into the family when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so we struggle, and Christians struggle. And one of the things that Jesus wants to make clear is the free gift and the gift that all of the Bible is telling us about ultimately. Even in the early church, they struggled. They believed in Jesus, but some, certain people thought you had to do extra things, in particular that you had to keep certain parts of the law of Moses in order to be saved. One of those things was that if you were a guy, a Gentile guy, you had to get circumcised. Jesus is all right, but now you've got to get circumcised. Can we talk about that this morning? Do I need to explain that? Ask me later. But as you can imagine, if you're coming to faith in Jesus Christ and then they tell you that you've got to do that, your response is, what? <laughs> and it was causing a lot of problems. It was causing people to not come to Jesus because they thought, well, this is just the same as everything else then. I just got to keep a bunch of rules and I got to mark myself, and I got to do this stuff. And so a bunch of believers got together, and they had a discussion in the book of Acts about this, and James, the brother of Jesus, speaks up at the end. James, the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine growing up as James and your brother's Jesus? And your mom says to you, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> James struggled with that, but he comes around. And Acts 15 Verse 19, he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. There's a whole lot there we can get into, but that first part there, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. They were making it so hard to accept Jesus and His grace and the grace of God by piling up so many things. We do that today. We do that a lot in the church today. It's an election year. Is Jesus a Democrat or a Republican? We pile that on, don't we? You got to accept Jesus, but you got to vote this way. And people on the left and right do that when we all know Jesus is in the Green Party. <laughs> not really. He's not a citizen of our country, but He's in charge of it one way or the other. See, we start to pile stuff on to who Jesus is and what Jesus is about that doesn't need to be there, that just prevents people from getting to Jesus, prevents people from seeing His grace, from His forgiveness, 
from what the Scriptures actually teach when we start reading our own stuff into it. And when we add things to the gospel or when we make rules that are non-essential, essential, it's not gospel anymore. It's something else. Jesus is talking about that in our passage today. There's an old story about a bank robber, and he lived in Mexico, and he'd go into Texas and rob banks and take the money back into Mexico. Jorge Rodriguez was his name. And Jorge finally gets tracked down by a Texas Ranger, and he's in Mexico. Texas Ranger goes over the border, doesn't care. He says, you know what, we're in your land here, Jorge, and I got a gun to your head. You tell me where that money is, or I'm going to shoot you. But the Texas Ranger realizes all of a sudden that Jorge doesn't speak a word of English, doesn't understand anything he says. Well, they found an interpreter, and the interpreter comes over and says, can you interpret for me? Yes. You tell him that if he doesn't give me that money back, his life is going to end today. And the interpreter says, okay, and he interprets that to Jorge perfectly. And Jorge says in Spanish, okay, all right, I give up. The money is actually nearby. I was coming here to get it when you caught me. And you need to go over by that well over there, and it's just down the ravine. There are four large stones next to the ravine. Just go down there, and the money is under that fourth stone. It's about $75,000. That's all there. I haven't spent any of it. You can have the whole thing. And the interpreter says to the Texas ranger, uh, Jorge says he's ready to die, and he'll never tell you where that money is. We all want to be interpreted correctly when we say something. Jesus wants to be interpreted correctly. He wants us to understand what He is saying. And what was going on in this culture is the Pharisees were translating the message of Jesus incorrectly, the message of the law, the message of Moses and the prophets. They were doing it wrong because there was something in it for them ultimately, so they tweaked it. They got some glory, they got some entitlements, and they got more. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus has been telling people they will be blessed if they are poor in spirit, meaning they don't know much spiritually, which is not something you like if you're a Pharisee and you're listening in because you think you're Mr. Know-it-all. They are blessed for all kinds of humility and putting other people's first, and they are, they are the salt and light of the, the world and a city on a hill and all of this, and the Pharisees were getting agitated. What about me? What about us? And a lot of people think that the Pharisees might have even been there afterward accusing Jesus, or they're there, and Jesus knows what's on their heart, and He can read their faces as He's talking. And He knows that the people are thinking about it one way or the other. And the charge that was made against Jesus ultimately was that He was abolishing the law, that He was coming to just change everything. It's the same charge that was made against Stephen and Peter and Paul, that you guys are anti-Israel, you're anti-law, and we're going to get rid of you. You see, the teaching of the law was meant to be so that the follower of God would revere the greatness of God, submit to His holiness, and obey God from His heart or her heart. And that had gotten lost over time. It's a weird thing to talk about law, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the hard part about this. But when you think about it, from the, the Hebrew sense of it, it's the law is the, it's the right translation, it's the right word. But the idea of law for the Jewish person was more about teaching. It's a law of Moses, but really it's the teaching of Moses, and it's the law, but it's teaching. And if you think about it in our world today, when we have laws somewhere, hopefully there's probably some teaching. Speed limit is 70 miles an hour. All right, we ignore that. But somebody who came up with the law, there is teaching behind it, right? The teaching behind it that we don't think about is it's not safe for you or other people to drive faster than that on this road. 
You see, there's something much deeper that isn't just about you and it isn't just some law because of some grumpy politicians. There's something deeper to the law that's about teaching us how to live and how to live with one another and how to live right. And this gets lost when we become just about one thing or another and keeping the law or not, not realizing it's so much more. When Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, it's important that we realize that He's not actually saying things that are new or controversial in the historic sense, that if Abraham or David or Moses were there, they would all say amen. That's exactly what the law is about, what Jesus is saying. And today, Jesus is going to say that He is the fulfillment of the law, that He is fulfilling the law, that He is the protector of the Word, and that He is the teacher of the heart. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Matthew, 17, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's talking about his, your Old Testament. The law and the prophets, the words of Moses and the prophets, prophets, capital P, the rest of your Old Testament. And the Pharisees, their teaching was that they declared what the letter of the law was and how it was to be kept. In fact, they had a book called the Talmud, and if you wanted to know how to keep the law, you could go find it. You didn't actually have to think for yourself, what does this mean? Somebody had written down what it means, and you just go follow that. And it had changed over time to something else. The spirit of the law was lost. It became about religion and not about faithfulness to God. It became about following a bunch of rules and doing the minimum I could just to follow the rules. And as long as I could follow the rules, particularly the rules by my particular rabbi who I liked, then I would be okay. But the relationship that we are to have with God, the understanding of the words to have of God and His holiness and His righteousness and all these things was being lost in the teaching. You see, there's a difference between being religious and being faithful. Religious people worry about the rules all the time, and they worry about it because they're worried about their own happiness or their own standing as compared to other people. It's religious. Well, I'm keeping the rules, and I do this, and I do that, and I'm, at least I'm better than that person over there who's struggling to keep these rules. Faithful people are concerned about what the rules mean relationally with God and with other people. It's a completely different thing. There's a difference between those two things. And you'll notice in the New Testament, most of the time when Jesus gets upset, He's getting upset not at the sinners and the pagans, but mostly He's upset at the religious people, particularly the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, 23 through 24, Jesus says to the Pharisees, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. They would literally actually strain out a gnat in their drink. They'd put cloth over it and pour it out and get the gnats out of it, which, you know, I do that with my coffee, not really, but that's what they do. No one's actually swallowing a camel, but he's making a great point. And what was happening is the Pharisees would get meticulous about the smallest things. They would literally take their spices and their spice rack, and they would tie the tenth of it, and they'd carve it all up. Can you imagine doing that, you know, with like your, you know, your parsley and just, what's a tenth of my parsley, and carving it up and separating that and putting it aside? The crazy thing is that they would spend all this time doing that and being meticulous about it and accusing each other of not doing it right if they weren't. But at the same time, in another place, Jesus points out that they weren't taking care of their parents, their aging parents. 
And instead, they would take the money that they would have had to do that, and they would declare it korban, meaning this is God's money, and so I'm not going to use it to take care of my parents and honor my parents with it. I'm going to give it to the synagogue. And they would say, look at how spiritual I am because I'm giving it to the synagogue. Sorry, mom and dad. And they're ignoring one of the greatest commands in Scripture, in the law, to honor your father and mother, to take care of them. And Jesus, and what they're doing is they're spiritualizing what they're doing. When they're not being spiritual at all, they're actually just being selfish. Because if I take the money I'm supposed to use to honor my parents, I can count it towards my, my own tithe to the church. And they're ready to tithe, you know, to the synagogue. They're ready to tithe their mitten and all that, but they're cheating on the income side of it and coming up with a spiritual reason to justify it. And Jesus sees right through it. He knows their hearts. And essentially, he says, you nicely disregard the commandment of God so you can uphold your tradition and your entitlements but you're denying the weightier matters of the law like love of God and justice and salvation. There's 613 laws in your Old Testament. If you hone it down to 10, you get the 10 commandments. They begin with honoring God, then you honor your parents, then you honor your fellow man. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't kill him. And then don't covet. Don't make your life about getting a bunch of stuff. Don't seek possessions, seek God. And Jesus would narrow it down even further to just two. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the commandments and laws hang on that. But these teachers of the law in this day, they were saying to Jesus, you are abolishing the law. But actually, Jesus was abolishing their superficial and carnal, find a way to get around the spirit of the law and keep your own control and entitlement to something because you want to keep following your bad interpretation of the law because it makes you happy. It's kind of like, uh, imagine there's two kids, and you tell them to make their beds, and one of them goes in the room, and you go in to see if they made their bed, and you go in, and all he's done is take the blanket and just throw it over. It's all lumpy, and all the stuffed animals are in there, and everything. And you say, uh, I asked you to make your bed. He says, I did make the bed. Okay, well, you put the cover over it, but you know, your stuffed animals are still there, and it's all lumpy. Well, you didn't tell me to take the stuffed animals out. Well, okay, there's Legos all over the top of your bed. They don't really belong there. Well, you didn't tell me to remove the Legos. Well, your pillow's all kind of smashed, and it's not fluffed up, you know. And, well, you didn't tell me to do that. You just said, make the bed. Some of you right now are thinking I'm talking about somebody in our church, somebody in our kids' program right now. <laughs> and then the other kid, you say, make the bed. He goes in and he makes a bed and it looks like he's in the military and the pillows are fluffed and the stuffed animals are all facing forward and, uh, to, and he turns off his nightlight and he dusts the room and he picks up all of his toys and you go and it's amazing. And some of you are saying, can I have that kid? Who is that? There's a difference between the two, even though both think of themselves as being obedient. The spirit of make your bed isn't just do the minimum possible to make it. It's make it, make it look nice. One is following the law. One is following the spirit of what actually is being said. The Pharisees are kid A. Jesus is saying we need to be kid B. And see, he's not abolishing the law at all, but he's reforming it back to true obedience and to the real fear of God that it was meant to be. And do these people hear this and go, wow, what a reformer? No, they said, you're abolishing the law, and they decide to kill him. And it's true when we say that Jesus was a revolutionary, but he was a revolutionary in the sense that he was bringing people back to the teaching of Moses and the prophets and what it was meant to be, away from what it had become. He was not invalidating that teaching or saying you don't need to have it anymore. He's telling you what it really was about and bringing us back to that. Jesus says, I'm not abolishing the law. Your laws are abolishing me. And I'm bringing 
me back into it for all the people. You see, Jesus is more devoted to the law than anybody when you read the Scriptures. The words of his Father, his words. Can I give you something theological for a minute? I know this is heavy. This is why you can kind of get through this. But this is Jesus fulfilling the law. He does it in many ways. He fulfills the preaching of the law because he interprets it and he teaches it with authority. He would tell people the law is being fulfilled in your hearing when he reads from Isaiah. It's about me. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the law. The the Messiah would come one day and die and rise again and come again one day to rule. The law is established by Christ doing this. He's fulfilling the purpose of the law to show us our sin and to bring us to faith fulfilled by Christ in his death and resurrection. Jesus fulfills what the law is saying is necessary. He fulfills the pictures of the law that say the law tells us that we cannot come to God on our own but through the blood of the lamb and the mediation of a high priest. This gets fulfilled in Christ. He fulfills the law. The penalty of the law that the wage of sin is death and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. The penalty of the law is fulfilled in Christ. He dies in your place and he rises again defeating death. The problem of the law is that the law can describe that the, the problem we have spiritually and the problem of sin and righteousness, but the law itself can't bring about the change that's needed, but the new covenant does in Jesus Christ. That's why we take communion at the end to remind us that there's a new covenant now fulfilled in Christ. There are promises of the law that are fulfilled. Many of the promises of the law, his coming death and his kingdom and his, the, heaven, the new heaven and the new earth that's coming eventually, they're fulfilled in Christ. You see, all of it gets fulfilled in Jesus. And this is what the whole Bible is about right here from beginning and end. You could take these verses and, and understand what the Scriptures are about from Genesis to Revelation. It's about God's will being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And you also see that this is what the world is about, that it's about salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is running the universe, by the way. And we should listen to the one who knows what's up. And Jesus is also pointing something else out here as well, that this isn't about religion, it's about faithfulness, and it's relational. It's not about setting up the law on the highest throne in our minds and trying to obey it for our own sake. It's about Jesus sitting on the throne of grace and we can approach him relationally and get forgiveness that's undeserved but freely given. How do you know somebody personally? You can know about somebody, you can read about them, you can read a biography, but you know somebody personally when you have their own words, when you're gonna have a conversation, when you've heard what they have to say. Jesus doesn't want that to be lost because you see, the teaching of Moses is his words. The teaching in the scriptures, Peter would quote David, but he would quote David saying, these are the words of God. If we wanna know God, we have to know his word. And Jesus is about protecting that because it's how we relate to him. So Jesus is the protector of the word. In verse 19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these things, these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a strong statement, particularly if you're a Pharisee and a teacher of the law, a scribe and you think that you're just smarter than everybody and you think you're above everybody and people come to you for all the answers and Jesus is saying that your righteousness needs to surpass theirs and they're teaching that they're righteous because they know more than you do and they're more righteous than you. That's wrong teaching. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. 
When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we get his righteousness robed around us so that when we face God one day, we have the righteousness of Christ and we're led into heaven because it was given to us as a gift. God's not going to say, well, what was your church attendance like and uh, did you study this? Uh, tell me about Habakkuk. Would you summarize that book for me? Here's Habakkuk now. Have you ever met him? You see, Jesus doesn't want to be deliberately misinterpreted of his gospel so that we can get our own way with stuff. He's pointing this out because this is what the Pharisees are doing, and all the people need to understand this. Some things that Jesus says are hard to understand. This is a hard passage to understand fully. We're not even going to get to a lot of it today. But you know what? Most of the Bible, if you just sit and read through it, it's not that difficult. Some of it you're going to read it and go, I have no idea what that means. But most of it, most people can just read and you'll understand it. Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. It's a funny statement, but part of it is he can read the Bible and understands what it says. And so can you. And Jesus wants to protect that. And he's saying, if you've got a problem with what's in here, take it up with him. But don't make up your own version of it. He wants to be understood for what he's saying. <clears throat> I had an opportunity to preach in El Salvador one time. It was a mission trip, and it was a great honor to do this because people walked for four hours to get to this church service. Uh, and they had speakers set up outside that were in all the valleys and stuff. Maybe the biggest crowd I've ever spoken to, actually. I have no idea. I thought, man, people are walking for four hours to get here, and there's no donuts and no coffee. <clears throat> it better be good. And unfortunately, I don't speak Spanish. I took eight years of French. I have no idea why. Pardonnez-moi, où est la maison de pancake international? It's not even international, the IHOP. That's all I remember. So as I'm giving this sermon, and I'm speaking in interestingly on Matthew chapter 5, the passage I spoke on last week, Oikos, I'm talking about this. A guy named Walter was my interpreter. And Walter... You know, you, you, when you're doing this, you preach for a couple of sentences, and Walter will translate it. And you eventually kind of get a little rhythm going, and it's great, and I speak, and he speaks, and I speak, and he speaks, and I can see that people are hearing it, and it's good. Well, all of a sudden, somewhere in the middle of the message, Walter starts talking, and then he steps away from his little podium, and he starts getting excited. And he's talking like this, and moving his arms, and speaking this foreign tongue I don't understand. And I start to look at him because I know I didn't say all of that. There's no way I just said all that stuff he's just saying. Like, what is he talking about? And I asked him later, I said, what happened there? And he goes, I figured out what you're saying and where you're going, and I just felt like I needed to preach it. And I thought, that is what you want if somebody's interpreting your sermon, that they end up preaching it. That's what Jesus wants from us, not just in the words that we use, but in the way we live our life and the way we're, we're relating to one another, to represent Christ so that people see and understand the gospel of Christ, not just in our academic lesson, but in our life, in the way we speak to one another, in the way we forgive others as he forgives us, in the way we want his kingdom to come on this earth now, his will to be done, not our own, and that the world would see this. This is what Jesus wants us to do with his word. He wants us to live it, and he is protective of it because it's how people know God. 
We are to rightly represent Christ in His gospel. Are there things that we disagree about in doctrine? You bet there are. There's lots of things that we disagree on here and there. Some of them are pretty big. A lot of them are really small. And the saddest thing is that churches can divide over the smallest dumb thing. Happens all the time. And you know what the problem is? Is that when we are disagreeing over the small things, the gospel doesn't get preached during that. And we can get bogged down. The Scriptures tell us to not get bogged down in disputable matters. And you know what's hard about that is that we're getting bogged down in disputable matters sometimes, and then somebody wants to dispute whether or not it's disputable. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you know what the truth is, is it's all gospel negligence. And Christians get into this all the time. In the meantime, the world is taking a look, and they start to see believers as the Pharisees of today, arguing about this point or that. And I follow this pastor, I follow that pastor, I go to this church, I go to that church. Just like the Pharisees and the rabbis of that day and the teachers of the law. And we find ourselves straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Because at some point it's not about following Jesus, it's about me being right and you being wrong. About whatever the point is. And in the meantime, the gospel's not being preached and entire generations think the church is no different than anyone else, so why would they go? Jesus doesn't want that for his message. He doesn't want us to complicate it. He's saying something overall here that's important. And throughout his sermon and his teachings and throughout the Bible, God is looking for faithful people, not religious people. Every religion has two kinds of people in it, faithful people and religious people. Religious people are people who go through the motions of whatever the religion is, but their purpose is self-fulfillment. They want it to be good for them. Essentially, they want to be happy. And what happens is they try to fit themselves into whatever church or whatever, some other kind of place of worship or way of doing worship, whatever it's called, and they try to find a ritualistic pattern that suits them, and then they want to keep it. For some people, some of you might, you know, do yoga and it's stretching for you, but for other people, it's a religion. But it's for them. And when it comes to hardcore beliefs about things, simply religious or spiritual people don't really care that much about the hardcore stuff because they just like the social connection. They like how it makes them feel, likes how it makes them happy. It makes them have a better day, and that's all that matters. There used to be a Christian ministry. It was about weight loss years ago in the 90s, and it was a huge deal, and it kind of had a good teaching behind it, right, about how we're supposed to treat our bodies like a temple, not like a relatively well-managed managed, uh, Presbyterian youth center, but like a temple. And so you should lose weight. You should get in shape, right? There's a sort of theological message behind it, and people started getting involved and exercising and all this stuff. Well, the founder of this ministry made some public comments where she didn't think the Trinity was real. And so the, the, the weight loss ministry collapsed, and people said, you know, what, why'd you say that? What'd you do? And she said this, which I thought was profound. She said, look, people in the church, they don't care about the Trinity. They just want to lose weight. That's probably true. Not of everybody, hopefully of none of you. But that is a problem, isn't it? That we become religious, and it's really about how I can be happy and really how I can be comfortable. That's what a religious person does. This is why there's confusion about what religion teaches, not just Christianity, but even other religions, because people do that in all kinds of religions. Religious people can change whatever it was that they don't really like about the faith as long as it makes them happy or comfortable. It's about justifying your own position or comfort. That's why Western representations of even world religions is sometimes messed up. You know, there's a lot of Buddhists I've met who are not Buddhists at all, really. 
They just have kind of an American version of it. And lots of American Christians aren't really Christians. They just like the fellowship. You see, religious people tend to want to be happy, and it's for self-betterment. But faithful people are different. Faithful people go through the motions of their faith, but their purpose is to know God and to follow Him or to do whatever their faith requires. And for Christians, the faithful people pray, they study their Bibles, and they work hard, and they come to church regularly, and they, get in the, they want to be in the context of what it says, but they want to live that way. Christians, faithful Christians, seek to do God's will, not just know about it. They seek to do it. After all, it's the Word of God, not just some teaching from some happiness guru 2,000 years ago. It's the Word of the living God who made you, who loves you, who made you in His image, who sent His Son to die for you, to save you, to give you everlasting life. See, if you believe that, then you need to be faithful. You'll want to be faithful. A faithful Christian is one who is growing in their relationship with the living Christ, not just growing in their knowledge of Him. Jesus is the protector of His Word because that's how you get to know Him relationally. And Jesus, through His Word, He is also the teacher of the heart. Because what we're talking about is change in the heart. Whenever Jesus talks about how we should live, He's always giving you the power to how to live that way. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, that it isn't just some kind of rule. There's also a reason for that rule, and there's something deeper. So when you continue in this passage, and as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see this pattern where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I'm going to tell you what it's really about. And Jesus sets this standard so high, and you're going to say, there's no way I can meet that standard, which is the point. That's why you need a Savior, because you can't do it. And Jesus says this about anger. He says, you have heard it said that people, to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Seems fair. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What? Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus says that. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I bet Jesus' audience got real quiet during this part. You see, the law is not ju- of Jesus is not just saying that it's enough to refrain from harming or killing somebody. Jesus is talking about our heart attitude towards people. And he's saying, you know that guy who murdered that other guy? Uh, you might have that in you too. And maybe you just had a better upbringing or maybe there's some reason why you didn't take it to that level. But the grudge you're holding, the resentment you have, it's the same problem. And it's in your heart. You see, the spirit of the law is ultimately relational and it's about being reconciled to God and with each other relationally. You say, well, wait, what about anger? Doesn't God get angry? I mean, Jesus got angry. Jesus made a whip before going into the temple. You ever read that part? How can you say be against angry, being angry? And many people are called fools. Jesus called the Pharisees fools in the passage we just read, Matthew 23. In the Bible, a fool is a person who is so wise in his or her her own eyes that they don't see the havoc that they are wreaking by their actions all around them. It's very specific. Does Jesus call the Pharisees fools? He does. Well, what does he mean about 
this anger. It's a particular kind of anger that's violating this command, and it goes along with calling somebody a fool, or this word raka, this Aramaic word that most Bible translations don't even try to translate because it's so much deeper than just fool, really. It kind of means empty-headed or you're a nothing, that you have no value as a human being, that you have nothing. You're really, it just means nothing or empty. It's more than just an insult. It's calling somebody a non-entity. It's having an attitude of being dismissive of somebody or having contempt for a person or belittling them, condescension, you know, that kind of thing. See, when Jesus got angry, it was rooted in love. He wanted to see people come back to the right thing in the faith. When he's angry with the Pharisees, it's because he wants them to come back, and he's angry that they are turning so many people away. His anger rose out of love, his love for people and for the ones who were doing wrong. He loved the people that he called fools, and he was concerned about the harm that was being done. But you never see Jesus sneering or being contemptuous. This is godly anger that Jesus shows against sin and the harm that it causes. You know, Jesus, when he was about to be crucified, was spat upon, mocked, and beaten. Imagine when you read this, that the Roman soldiers were spitting on Jesus and mocking him and beating him, and imagine if it said, and Jesus was spat upon, and spitting back, Jesus said... I know you, and I know your sins, and you're going to rot in hell. We would have some trouble with Jesus at that point. Instead, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, ultimately. There is a difference, different kinds of anger. Our anger, we struggle. We want to say, oh, yeah, you spat on me first, or I'm going to spit on you. We want to do that. Our anger is often filled with contempt, and it's based on pride and ego. And here's how you know if your anger is not in the right place. Think of somebody that you might be angry with, and if you're enjoying thoughts of their suffering or humiliation, then you enjoy that scenario, then you probably have a grudge. Then you think something that's not right, that you are filled with contempt and disdain for that person, a person made in the image of God, a person forgiven by Christ on the cross, the same as you person who can't earn their salvation just like you can't earn your salvation. There's probably somebody out there who's mad at you for something that you did, who feels the same way that you feel about that person, about you. If that's your anger, this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, don't look at murderers and say, how can anyone do that? Because you have that too. You have contempt and grudges and more, and maybe you just had a little wisdom or better upbringing so you didn't kill them. See, he has standards for his followers that are pretty high, but we're not to hold a grudge or treat people dismissively because everybody is infinitely precious as they are made in the image of God. And when Jesus gets angry or confrontational, it's different. Sometimes in our lives we get angry and confrontational because it's different when we're trying to restore. And this is why it follows up with when you're having a dispute, you need to handle it relationally. Stay out of the courts. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. I like that part. Do it while you're still together on the way. Because you might be going to court on the trolley with the person that is suing you or you're suing. You ever take the trolley when you do uh, jury duty? I do. I love to take the trolley. And you sit on the trolley and you're going downtown to the courthouse. And uh, it's great because you're sitting in the trolley with other jurors, and all the defendants. You're all in there. That way, when you get into the courtroom and the judge says, do you know the defendant? Yeah, I just sat with him on the trolley. I don't think he did it. And they'll let you go home. 
What he's saying is, before you even get there, don't take this to court. It's about relational, relationship building. You know something about reconciliation is this. It's better to be reconciled with your brother and sister or sister than it is to be right. It's better to be reconciled than it is to be right. I met a man who's in this church. He didn't come here regularly. He came here for a while. He died shortly after he started coming. He was estranged from his son. When his son was 18, they had a dispute about a car payment. And dad thought that the son was going to make the payment, and son thought dad was going to make the payment. And they stopped talking to each other. Sixty years had gone by, and they had not spoken over a car payment and who was right. And he said, can you help me find my son? I don't even know where he is. And I couldn't find him before this guy died. We get so bent out of shape about stupid things. Mewitt, I heard the story. I think dad was right, actually. But to not talk to your son for 60 years just because you want to be right about a stupid car payment? Oh, my gosh. What's wrong with you? Your priorities are all messed up. This is the world. People do this in church. Jesus is saying this is not what we do. You settle up with your people. You don't need to be right. You need to be reconciled. We all struggle with that. Don't gossip, the word tells us. You know why Proverbs tells us? Because it separates close friends. You see, you don't gossip ultimately with people you don't know because you don't know if they're telling you anything. You, you know, you take it and you I don't know. You gossip with people you know because you trust them and you trust that whatever story they're telling you about somebody else is probably true because you trust them. And then when you find out it's not true, now you've got a trust problem with not just that other person, but now with your friend. That's why we don't do that. It destroys relationships, the best of relationships. You see, when we get into the law and the Word of God, it's always relational. The law of God, the commands of God, it's relational. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It doesn't say obey the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You should obey. But the love comes first. You obey because you love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not be kind to your neighbor as you would be kind to yourself. You can do that and hate them because you can be kind to anybody in the right circumstance. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the way you view them. It's the way you view God. This is all a condition of the heart, and Jesus doesn't want this lost in a bunch of rules and regulations, in a bunch of religion. He wants us to be faithful to Him and His call in our life. How's your heart? It's hard, isn't it? Are there people that you have not been charitable toward that come to mind that you have not been kind to? I bet we all think of people. Are you spreading around stuff that you don't actually know about whether or not it's true because you never asked the person involved? Stop, because you're going to end your own friendships. Are you growing in faithfulness or are you just growing in religion? Do you pray without ceasing or do you just pray when you're in trouble? 
See, this is a hard teaching of Jesus.